Hello, I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief for Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the last podcast of this year. This issue has a total of 15 articles, of which I will briefly summarize the 10 original full-length articles, but mention the other great contributions to this issue. The first paper is titled Residual Stroke Risk Despite Oral Anticoagulation in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. The first author is Dr. Matthew Carlisle and represents the author's at the Duke Clinical Research Institute and the Orbit AF Registry Patients and Investigators. I would note that this paper has an accompanying editorial by Dr. Taya Glotzer. The authors evaluated the risk of thromboembolism in 18,955 patients with atrial fibrillation who were taking oral anticoagulants. The mean age was 72 and 42% were women. The authors identified 451 stroke or TIA thromboembolic events. Using a multivariable Cox proportional hazard modeling, they identified that there was an increased risk of TE events associated with a higher CHADS of AS score, and in addition, permanent AF increased the recurrent risk of stroke or TIA with a hazard ratio of 1.47, though other components of the CHADS of AS carried a higher risk, with prior stroke or TIA having a hazard ratio of 1.52, hypertension 1.5, and female sex also approximately 1.5. Additional risk factors included antiplatelet use, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, previous myocardial infarction, renal dysfunction, and older age. Interestingly, obesity did not increase the risk. This study adds important information to the clinical management of patients taking oral anticoagulation. Efforts to be certain that patients do not miss a dose if taking a DOAC or are maintaining therapeutic INRs if on warfarin is important. The authors posit that in the highest risk patients, the new factor 11 inhibitors may emerge as an important alternative in high risk patients or that a left atrial appendage occlusion device might be considered. The next paper is titled Driver Characteristics Associated with Structurally and Electrically Remodeled Atria in Persistent Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Dylan Singh and colleagues from Bordeaux, France. These authors sought to determine the relationship of left atrial size and time in atrial fibrillation to potential drivers of AF. The patient population consisted of 100 patients with persistent atrial fibrillation less than two years duration. The mean AF duration was eight months, and the patients had a median left atrial diameter of 39 millimeters. All patients underwent electrocardiographic image or ECGI mapping. Potential drivers of AF were defined as a rotational wavefront of equal to or greater than 1.5 revolutions or the identification of focal activations. The authors looked at a number of different associations, including total potential driver or PD burden and total PD distribution. The authors identified a modest correlation between increasing left atrial area and left atrial volume and the proportion of PDs that were rotational. The R values were 0.235 and 0.216 respectively with p-values of 0.024 and 0.039 respectively. However, overall PD burden and distribution did not correlate with left atrial dimension. Regarding the time in atrial fibrillation, this was not found to correlate with either the overall PD burden or PD distribution. But the analysis did demonstrate an association between time in atrial fibrillation and the number of focal PDs, R value 0.203 and P value 0.044. Additionally, they looked at a number of clinical factors. Of these, female gender, increasing age, and hypertension were associated with an increase in focal PDs. 
The authors concluded that their study was the first to evaluate the associations of AF mechanisms, specifically potential AF drivers by ECGI with left atrial size and duration of persistent AF, as well as other clinical factors. They note that further investigations may help to better identify mechanisms and guide AF ablation. The next paper is titled, Impact of a Dedicated Atrial Fibrillation Clinic on Diagnosis to Ablation Time, by Andrea Robinson and colleagues at the Riverside Methodist Hospital and Ohio Health Doctors Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. This is a nice paper that looks at the benefit of a dedicated AF clinic on the time to ablation therapy. The author's institutions have established an AF clinic to manage both acute and non-acute outpatient visits. The acute AF clinic is designed to see patients within two business days of presenting with symptomatic atrial fibrillation. The patients are seen by an EP, allied health professional, and RNs. An oral anticoagulation, rate and rhythm control are addressed as well as any needed acute therapies. The non-acute clinic sees asymptomatic patients within two weeks of identification of AF, such as on a pacemaker or ICD interrogation. For both clinics, referrals to risk factor modification clinics are made as appropriate and identified. The authors identified 182 consecutive patients who underwent catheter ablation for AF for whom there was one year of follow-up. They found that patients referred for ablation from the dedicated AF clinic compared to patients referred from the regular EP clinics had a significantly reduced time from diagnosis to ablation. The patients that had been referred from the dedicated AF clinic, which represented 21% of the population, had a median time from diagnosis of AF to ablation of 342 days, compared to patients referred from a conventional EP clinic with a median time to ablation of 813 days. For those patients seen in the acute AF clinic, the time to ablation was only 127 days. Importantly, the authors found that the patients with a time to ablation of less than one year had a lower recurrence of AF post-ablation than those whose time from diagnosis to ablation was greater than one year. The next paper is entitled Economic Evaluation of Contact Force Catheter Ablation for Persistent Atrial Fibrillation in the United States. The first author is Jose Osorio. This study is based upon the PRECEPT study, which is a previously conducted and reported prospective review of the safety and effectiveness of the thermal cool smart touch SF catheter evaluated for treating symptomatic persistent AF. The current study uses the results of this study to construct an economic simulation model in order to compare the costs of radiofrequency catheter ablation compared to medical therapy. The analyses included cost offset and break-even for commercial payers, Medicare, and self-insured employers. The statistical analysis included the development of a cohort-level decision tree model, which was then validated. Sensitivity analyses were also performed. The authors identified that for all three types of payers, radiofrequency catheter ablation had a higher initial cost compared with medical therapy, but this was more than offset by decreased cardiovascular hospitalization costs such that the overall cost offset difference at one year was $5,037 U.S. for ablation versus $8,402 U.S. for medical therapy. The cost break-even time was approximately six years for commercial payers, four for Medicare, and five for those who were self-insured. The authors conclude that despite the higher upfront costs, catheter ablation can reduce healthcare costs compared to medical therapy, for AF patients.
Next is a paper by Dr. Felipe Bisbal and colleagues from Spain and Belgium. The title of this paper is Personalized Assessment of the Cumulative Complication Risk of the Atrial Fibrillation Ablation Track. These authors develop and validate a risk calculator termed AF-TRAC to assess the complication risks of repeat AF ablation. The derivation model used 2,943 patients who had 3,762 AF procedures. A first regression model was fitted to predict the propensity for repeat ablation. Internal and external validation were assessed for the area under the curve and goodness of fit. Out of the total cohort, 3.7% of patients had a complication, which was 2.9% of the procedures. The most common was pericardial tamponade, but there were no deaths or AE fistulas. 23% of the patients underwent two or more procedures. These patients had twice the rate of complications, 6% versus 3%. The af track calculator was adjusted for repeat procedures and identified age, female sex, heart failure, sleep apnea, and the likelihood of a repeat procedure to be associated with a higher complication risk. The AUC was found to be 0.61 and had good calibration. The external validation was evaluated using an independent patient cohort. It was identified that the AF track calculator model had an AUC of 0.67 and also good calibration. The authors conclude that they have developed an AF track calculator that has good discrimination to protect patients at high complication risk with repeat AF ablation procedures. Next is a paper titled Ripple Frequency Determined by a Novel Algorithm is Associated with Atrial Fibrillation Termination and freedom from atrial fibrillation by Drs. Daniel Melby and colleagues. In this study, the authors evaluated the Cartel Ripple Map algorithm on the outcome of 18-month freedom from AF following catheter ablation. The patient population were those with persistent AF and referred for first-time catheter ablation. A pentaray catheter was used to form a high-density ripple map. The ripple algorithm identifies amplitude changes in the bipolar electrogram. Following PVI in 84 patients, further ablation was then performed at locations with rapid ripple activations after analysis of the ripple maps. 115 total maps were analyzed, and the authors found that the top quartile of ripple frequencies corresponded to a visual reference that had a 96.7% sensitivity and 91.1% specificity. When looking at just the non-antrocytes, the top quartile of ripple frequency was associated with AF termination with a 90% sensitivity and 97% specificity. Among the 84 patients, AF terminated during the ablation in 88% of the patients, which included PVI plus non-antrocytes in 85% of the procedures. Follow-up showed that after 14 months and 1.2 ablations on average, 93% of the patients were free of AF, and 80% were free of any atrial arrhythmia. The authors conclude that the cartel ripple frequency algorithm had good sensitivity and specificity to detect targets for AF ablation in patients with persistent AF. Using ripple frequency to target ablation sites was associated with a high freedom from AF and any atrial arrhythmia. The next paper, comes to us from Dr. Larry Jackson and colleagues from Duke University. The title is Safety of Continuous Left Atrial Phased Array Intracardiac Echocardiography During Left Atrial Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation. 
The authors perform a retrospective analysis of 590 consecutive AF ablation patients in order to determine the safety of left atrial intracardiac ultrasound, or ICE. Right atrial ICE was used in all patients and with all four providers who performed the procedures. Left atrial ICE was used in 41% of the patients. Amongst the four operators, 83%, 59%, 35%, and 4% of them used left atrial ICE, respectively. The clinical characteristics of the patients who had right atrial ICE only were similar to those who additionally had left atrial ICE. This included AF type and history of prior stroke, or TIA. There were also no observed significant differences in procedural time between the right atrial ICE only group compared to the right atrial plus left atrial ICE patients. Major complications were assessed and compared between the two cohorts at 30 days. The authors found no difference, 2.9 and 3.7% respectively. Notably, there were no cases of esophageal or phrenic nerve injury or PV stenosis. There was also no differences in minor complications, occurring in 7% of those who had right atrial ice only versus 8.4% of those who also had left atrial ice. The authors conclude that the use of left atrial ice imaging is safe. They note that the advantage of using left atrial ice is that it can provide better imaging of the esophagus to ablation target distance, pulmonary vein sites, the ligament of Marshall, and any atrial diverticula. The next paper is Rate or Rhythm Control in CRT, the Rhythmic Trial, Study Rationale and Protocol by Dr. Mark K. Elliott and colleagues. This is a design or methods paper describing the rhythmic multicenter prospective randomized trial of patients who have CRT and atrial fibrillation. The randomization is to AF ablation versus AV node ablation in patients with less than target BIV pacing. The authors plan to enroll 70 patients randomized one-to-one -one to the AF ablation or AV node ablation groups. Follow-up will include transthoracic echocardiography and ECGs at one week and at six months. The primary endpoint is change in left ventricular ejection fraction by echo. The authors note that this is the first randomized controlled trial to compare AV node ablation and AF ablation in patients with cardiac resynchronization therapy. The next paper is Time Course of Oversensing and Impedance Changes in Developing Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Lead Fracture by Dr. Chuck Swerdlow working with researchers at Medtronic, Adam Himes, and Scott Hoyam. This article has an accompanying author interview, and I invite you to view this on HRS TV hosted by YouTube. The purpose of this study was to characterize the relationship between oversensing, impedance, and structural changes in ICD leads developing PaceSense conductor fractures. This is an in vitro study with a test setup of ICD leads in an electrolyte bath. Bending tests were performed on 32 leads, and electrograms were recorded. Direct current resistance was recorded every three minutes. Oversensing on the electrograms was noted with partial pacing coil fractures or with complete ring cable fractures. Oversensing occurs prior to impedance changes large enough to trigger device alerts. Clinicians need to consider seriously the presence of oversensing noise on intracardiac electrograms for the possibility of lead failure. The next paper is by Dr. Petrus and colleagues from Austria and Spain. And the title of the paper is Impact of Electrode Tip Shape on Catheter Performance in Cardiac Radiofrequency Ablation. In this study, the authors evaluate the safety and efficacy of two different open irrigated ablation catheter tips, spherical versus cylindrical, using simulated computational modeling. 
A total of 108 simulations were performed where contact force, blood flow, and irrigation was varied. Lesions were defined by the 50 degrees centigrade isotherm contour. Width, depth, depth at maximum width, and volume were measured. The investigators found that the tissue electrocontact is less for the spherical tip at low contact force, but the relationship is inverted at high contact force. They also found that the cylindrical tip versus the spherical tip generates deeper and wider lesions at low contact force and a fourfold larger volume. At higher contact force, the spherical tip lesions are similar to the cylindrical tip lesions. The authors note that contact force and power determine the occurrence of thermal pops for the spherical shape, whereas power is the main factor for the cylindrical tip shape. The authors conclude the catheter ablation tip shape can significantly affect the safety of the catheter. The next paper is a review paper by Drs. Chang-Ai Wu, Peter Schwartz, Mike Ackerman, and Dr. Arthur Wilda. This paper is titled, COVID-19 Vaccination in Patients with Long QT Syndrome. In this paper, the authors discuss the risk to LQTS patients related to the COVID-19 vaccine, including fever, myocarditis, and the effects of the autonomic disturbances observed with the vaccine, as well as with COVID-19 infection. They provide recommendations to reduce potential risk to LQTS patients. The next paper is an interesting case report titled Incessant Ventricular Tachycardia with Simultaneous Recording of Separate Exits with Common Isthmus Wavefront Propagation. The authors are Dr. Marianne Detro Langloa and colleagues from Quebec, Canada, and Milan, Italy. The final article is a brief report. The title is Effective Stimulation Parameters on Entrainment, first authored by Dr. Sen Lee. This is a 21-patient study of patients with atypical atrial flutter. The authors look at the effect of pacing stimuli, different intensities, and rates. The authors find that the post-pacing interval is related to all three of these variables. Well, that concludes this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be publishing monthly starting next month, so please tune in to our next podcast issue, January of 2023. And happy holidays to all of you.